Good morning. Hey, it's terrific to be with you this morning. My name is Mark Scandrett, and I'm a friend of Pastor Shannon's, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. I might be a little giddy because this is the first time I've live taught in about 15 months. So, um, uh, yeah, here we go. So, um, really wonderful to be with you. I want to tell you a little bit about myself. And um, because of the clicker issue here, we're gonna I'm gonna sh- we're gonna look back and forth here. Got it? So, um, I'm married to a woman named Lisa, and we've got three young adult kids. And for the last 24 years, we've lived in San Francisco's Mission District. I moved there, or our family moved there in 1998 to figure out how to become part of an urban neighborhood and to love our neighbors and to start a Jesus-centered community. So it's been a wild ride, lots of excitement along the way. I've ended up writing four or five different books based on the experiences we've had, and I brought some of them uh, if you are interested today. And I work with an organization that I co-founded called Reimagine. We call ourselves a Center for Integral Christian Practice, which um, that's fancy language just to say we're really passionate about helping people apply the teachings of Christ to everyday life. And that'll be my goal for uh, my talk today is to, to look at this theme of how to love all people unconditionally. And um, if you'll be willing to join me, we're going to wrestle through what are, what, what's that going to take for us to learn to embody that. So I want to say my talk might be a little bit different than some that you're used to. Uh, For one thing, I might invite you to stand up and move around a little bit and turn towards someone else that you're sitting next to, obviously COVID safely. Um, I'm going to share not only from the scriptures, but from my personal life in, in ways that might be a little bit vulnerable. And I'm doing that on purpose to invite you to also look inside about your life and where those edge lines are for you taking that step to say yes to learning to love Uh, all people unconditionally. So are you okay with that if we try a few new things together? Can you give me a thumbs up just to give me some consent for that? Great. So again, I'm so excited that today I get to um, talk a bit about this value that your church community has to love all people unconditionally. I just love this. Who was the team that came up with this uh, values, these value statements? Incredible. So the first thing I want to suggest is that um, is that, is that uh, it's not an easy thing to love all people unconditionally. Um, it is, however, all people do love somebody, and so it's, it's actually easier to love some people when it's easy. And at one place in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors and sinners doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want to suggest to you that there's a natural love that all human beings instinctually have towards their partner, towards their children, towards their best friends, towards the people that they depend on. But the gospel invites us and the the model of Jesus invites us to love radically and unconditionally, to reach past difference, to connect with those we might not naturally love. In fact, Jesus goes all the way to say we should love our enemies, bless them, and pray for them. And so here's kind of the animating question I have for, uh, for us to consider is, why is it hard to love all people 
unconditionally? What, what, are the, what are the psychological dynamics that are involved in this that make it challenging to love all people unconditionally? And I want to name three, three things that I think are built into our biology that make it challenging to love all people conditionally. And if we're going to learn to love all people uh, unconditionally, we're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to do some things to transform us, to move us beyond our biology into the, the light and the love of the kingdom of God. So the first one I want to name is that we have an instinct to divide the world into us and them. People like me and people not like me. People who, um, who like the things that I like, um, people who I'm related to, my family, my tribe, my country, people who have the same sports team and political as par- party as me. Uh, so we get into this, we naturally get into this mentality of, and do this with me as a posture, us versus them, right? Um, and um, I, I'm an expert on this. Like, aside from like family relations and all that stuff, I have very particular interests in things and uh, how I like to dress and my preferences when it comes to things like coffee. I like to drink. I like. I ground my own coffee beans. I I um, I heat them to exactly 185 degrees uh, uh, with the, the water at 185 degrees. I I have a certain conical grinder that I use for my coffee, and then I use an arrow press. That's how coffee should be made, right? Single origin. And if you drink, if you drink your coffee another way, you're on the other side of my us and them, okay? And if you don't drink coffee, there's another side to the other side of the us and them. So we, we, do you have things like this in your life where, where you tend to have these things? Well, Research suggests that this is actually built into our biology, that I naturally trust people um, more who, whose faces and skin tones look like mine. And if your facial features and skin tones are different than mine, I naturally have a distrust for you. The alarm goes up. Maybe this person isn't quite as safe. So to put it a different way, if we're going to learn to not be racist, then we need the Holy Spirit to help us move beyond our biology. Um, So a question that I would invite you to consider for yourself is who do you tend to put on the other side of us and them? Uh, Where are those lines for you in in your life? And maybe in the follow-up session over in the fellowship hall afterwards, we could talk a little bit more personally about about some of this, or I'd invite you to talk through with those you live with or love today where some of these points of recognition are for you about where you draw those lines of us and them. A second instinct that challenges us, the invitation to love all people unconditionally, is our instinct to compete and compare. Do you remember being a a small child and wondering, I remember doing this as a three or four-year-old up through grade school, who's taller and who's smaller? Who's the fastest runner and who's not as fast? Am I good-looking or less good-looking as my classmate? Who's the best at reading and the best at math? Am I greater than or less than? Social comparison theory suggests that this comparing is how we, uh, one of the primitive ways 
We develop our sense of who we are. And some of us strive to become better than other people, to feel like we have the upper hand. And others of us kind of give up. We go, oh, there's no way I can compete with that person right there. And so we live with this sense of diminishment. And I think that this tendency to have this hierarchical thinking of greater than and less than affects our ability to love all people unconditionally. Because we tend to, when we encounter someone, do this math in our heads, do the, these comparisons, and it, it challenges our ability to have uh, intimate or connected relationship with someone. If I feel threatened by someone, if I think they're better than me, it's hard to be close. But conversely, if I think I'm better than someone else, that creates distance and a, and a, and a challenge to our, my ability to, to be in loving relationship with them. So a second kind of self-awareness question for you this morning is how do you tend to feel greater than or less than other people? Uh, about 10 years ago, there was a, a young guy who moved into my neighborhood. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of him. His name is Mark, just like me. Last name Zuckerberg. And um, suddenly, we have a billionaire who lives within 10 blocks of me. I mean, I don't know how often he actually lives there, right? But, but he's got a compound of three houses and some security guards just uh, up the street from where I usually get my coffee if I go out for coffee. And, and I felt this sense of, wow, I'm obviously less than this person, Right? And at least in terms of economics. And I think there's so many different ways that we tend to do these comparisons. Who has a better education or a better job or, um, uh, you know, a cooler lifestyle or hobbies or things like that. And the, all these things, if, we are, if we're not careful, can tend to affect our ability to be in loving, connected relationships with one another. A third instinct I want to name that affects our ability to love all people unconditionally is our instinct to judge and feel contempt. Um, do you remember being a small child and if you watched a television show or a movie or someone was reading you a story, you wonder who's the good guy in the story and who's the bad guy? Anybody remember doing that? And what we really wanted to see happen is the good guy um, win over the bad guy and the bad guy to get what they deserved. And we do the same thing. We internalize this and we go, am I a good girl or a bad girl? Am I a good boy or a bad boy? And if we feel like we're not, that, that, that we've, done, we, we've done bad or that we are bad, we, wanna, we feel like we should be punished. And our, um, our challenges around judgment and contempt I think really affect our ability to show up to one another in, in loving and, care, and caring ways. And um, there's a, there's a, um, a, back in the 90s, there was a Canadian comedy where they had, a, one of the characters was called the Head Crusher. Maybe some of you remember this. And this character would hold up his, um, his fingers. He'd stand uh, in, a, in a populated area, like downtown financial district of San Francisco, and he would look at people and hold, their, hold his fingers up in order to, to get their head between his fingers. And he'd go, I crush you, I crush you. I crush you. I crush your head. Try this with me. Look at someone else. I crush you. I crush you. Right? Now, I'm not trying to encourage this, but I think that it is one of the tendencies that we have is when we look at others, 
when we're not secure in who we are, we tend to, um, we tend to label, evaluate, and judge. And if you're not the kind of person that I naturally like, I can feel some contempt towards you in my heart. Um, I've got a little story about this. I was, um, uh, that happened not too long ago. I'm part of a, uh, I helped start something called Friends of Garfield Square. I live kitty corner in the mission from uh, a, a one block park that has, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a swimming pool, it's got soccer fields, it's got a playground, but it's also a place where dozens of people congregate who are who um, don't have housing. It's often like the party place for people who play cards and gamble. And so a few years ago, we started this uh, Friends of Garfield Park to help uh, kind of clean up the square and make it a place where, it would, where um, all people would feel comfortable and it would feel safe for children and older people. And so part of what we do is once a month we go gardening um, with one of the San Francisco Park Department gardeners, and we're doing some weeding, and uh, a person of a different ethnicity than me walked by, and I thought that they said something that suggested that they were, a, um, they were involved in sex work um, as a pimp. And so... A few minutes later, I saw a woman go into the bathroom, and then I saw this gentleman follow her into the bathroom. And my mind was imagining what was happening in that bathroom. And so I turned to the people that I was working with, and I said, I think we have a problem here, because uh, I just saw a guy go into the bathroom, and I, and, um, and I think that something... Un, untoward might be happening in there. And I didn't want to have to go in and confront, so I, sent, I, I said, you're the park worker, you should go in. And this person knocked on the door and said, hey, is there a man in there? And the man came out and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was just helping my friend who's been going through a hard time. I was just helping her make a sandwich. And I hear this and I'm like, is that what they call that these days, making a sandwich? And, um, and I'm joking with the other people, and I'm imagining these things ha- that were happening in the bathroom. And a few minutes later, that woman came out of the bathroom carrying a sandwich. He'd actually been helping his friend carry a sandwich. And me, this middle-class person who identifies as a follower of Jesus, is thinking the worst things possible. It kind of confronted me with my tendency to label and to judge and to see things in the most negative light possible, partly because of that social distance. So I think we've named some of these things enough. Um, Is there another way? If these are our natural, biological, uh, human instincts, let's imagine that you and I could learn to love all people unconditionally, that we have access to the Holy Spirit and the power of resurrection that might help us. What would we need to believe and internalize? And how? what are some things that we could do to practice learning how to love unconditionally? This is the way we're going to turn the corner on the talk today. What would that be like? Is that a kind of, would you, would you like to learn to love all people unconditionally in the way that Jesus has modeled for us? Let's take a look. We're going to use a couple of passages today to explore this. First, uh, we want to look at 1 John, and I'm just going to read these verses that are probably quite familiar to you, where, where Jesus said, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. What turned the world upside down around the Jesus phenomenon more than 2000, around 2,000 years ago was this growing group of people who loved radically. And um, it, it woke up their neighbors. Uh, Aristides, who was a historian uh, in the second century, made comments about Christians of the time. And he says, Christians love one another. They never fail to help orphans and widows. If they see someone who doesn't have food, they give them their food. If they see someone who doesn't have housing, they invite them into their homes. And then Aristides went on to say, this is a new kind of human being. There is something divine in them. And so this speaks to the possibility that because of resurrection power, you and I have the ability to learn to love radically. And Jesus is our model for this. And so I want to explore a little bit this story from John 4 about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it's quite a long passage and there's quite a bit of conversation there. Uh, so I don't want to take the time to go through all of it, but I want to just point out a few things from the story. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had to go through some, uh, Samaria and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me something to drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, Wait a second, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so they, this ensues a conversation between the two of them about literal water and living water and about the differences between their people and about a time coming when people will worship in spirit and truth. And then, and then we're going to pick the story up here. But then his disciples returned and were surprised him talking with a woman. But nobody asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And one of the things that happened in their conversation was it was revealed that she was, she'd been married five times and the person who was, she was living with was, uh, currently was not what she was not married to. And I want to point out a few things about this story. Um, Samaritans were considered half-breeds to Jewish people. Um, they, did, they were not considered to have like full citizenship in the, their kind of shared heritage. They were um, seen as dirty and, and definitely put on the other side of us and them. The woman in particular in this story, um, she came to the well at 12 noon which would be the hottest part of the day. So any respectable woman who was part of that culture 
would have gone to fetch water early in the morning. So even among her own people, she was despised. And I would even consider that she was probably living with that man she was living with and not married to because she needed to provide for her kids. And it was, the, it was that exchange of services was the only way that she could get the things that she needed for her family. But it reinforced her otherness from the people that, um, in her village. So a few things to, that I think are instructive about this story, about how we can learn to love all people unconditionally. First, Jesus intentionally crossed boundaries to connect. Most, peop, most Jews would literally go around Samaria to get to, to where they needed to go. But Jesus led his disciples right through this area of, of difference intentionally. And I want to suggest to you that if we want to learn to live, uh, to love all people unconditionally, that we're going to have to change some of our common traffic patterns of where we, where we, where we live, where we, where we, um, who we associate with, how we travel places, and um, that that we're going to have to take some intentional efforts to move from this posture of us and them to learning to embrace all people. So what's reality? What's kingdom reality? Kingdom reality is that even though there are differences, right? The, the differences are real. That the gospel invites us to look past those differences and to recognize, as it says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. That that person who feels the most different, the most other from me, is actually also a child of God made in God's image. And that we're family. Uh, we're, we're, we're essentially brothers and sisters. And so the gospel invites us, and you can do this with me, with your, with your body, to reach past our differences, to embrace and connect. Because of the reality that we are all members of one eternal family, our divine creator's family. I want to tell you a couple stories about this. Uh, a few years ago, I went to a friendship day at one of the, um, one of the mosques or majids in San Francisco. It's a little bit of a funny story where um, I actually got the wrong address for where this um, friendship day was going to happen. So I showed up at a particular mosque unannounced with a friend of mine and said, okay, we're here for the friendship day. And they didn't have any idea what we were talking about, but they welcomed us anyway. They showed me how to do the uh, ritual washing before uh, prayers. And we went in together. And, um, and afterwards I said, so are we going to have the snacks and talk for a while? Because that's what the, the advertisement said. And they're like, I, I guess we could go. And this, one of them went to the st corner store and brought back some snacks and some tea to drink. And we started a conversation. Well, that was the un unlikely beginning of a longer-term relationship that I had with the people of that mosque or, or majid. I was introduced to the sheikh. And um, I would occasionally go or bring a pastor friend of mine along to uh, Friday prayers. Almost every, uh, uh, every time I'd go, they'd say, uh, our friend Mark, 
uh, welcome, we're glad you're here. Do you have anything to share with us? And they would uh, invite me up in front of mostly a group of Yemeni, 200, 300 Yemenis men and give me the microphone to say, please share with us, Mark. Happy to have you talk with us. Uh, We got invited to the um, the various feasts at the end of Ramadan, the Eid Iftar meal, and um, like we're welcomed as just incredible uh, with so much hospitality. Um, I knew that uh, back in 2017, when a ban was put on um, people traveling from seven different um, Muslim countries, that my friends at the mosque would be really affected by this. And so I made a special effort to go during pri- Friday prayer just to encourage them. And I was given the microphone again, and I said, listen, I, I, I don't think this is just that you can't travel back and forth to see family and ba- back and forth. This is a hard time. But I want you to know we're in this together and we're going to get, with God's help, we're going to get through this together. I was just um, overwhelmed with welcome at the, at the end of the Friday prayers. And uh, these three guys I've shown you a picture of rushed up. Some of the younger guys, they wanted me to get, uh, do selfies with them. I was like maybe the first, um, you know, Anglo-identifying Christian person that they'd had real, a real authentic encounter with. And it, it blessed them so much. Uh, uh, a few months later, we actually did a gathering uh, down in Silicon Valley where I invited the Sheikh uh, to come along because we were talking about faith in the workplace and uh, Princeton University had funded some, some of us to do some of this work. And um, the Sheikh said to me, <clears throat> he said, um, back in the story of our tradition, when, um, when the Christians were traveling through, the Prophet Muhammad said, we must give them a place of worship. Um, in the mosque. And so they set aside an area where Christians could pray in the way that they felt comfortable. And, and they told me, even at the mosque, you're welcome to pray as you wish. We, we, it's, our ob- it's our responsibility to welcome you here. And it kind of blew my mind thinking, what if we, as f- those who identify as followers of Jesus, offered the same kind of reciprocity and hospitality to, 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 to Muslim people as I've experienced in, in local mosques here in the Bay Area. Uh, it, it really inspired me. I also want to name that, um, <clears throat> that we're in a time where there's incredible divides in terms of race and class in our culture. And I know that our hearts break about this, most of us would say, I do not want to be a racist. I do not want to treat people who are different than me in race and class in any kind of um, uh, way that's not, not kind. But we are also part of structural systems. Um, San Mateo County and all of the Bay Area had a policy of redlining that went up through, I believe, the 1980s and in some places the 1990s, where if you were a cert- of a certain race, you were not allowed to buy property in certain neighborhoods. And so what that's meant is that, and, and some of those things carry into the workplace where uh, if, you, if you keep up on this stuff, some of the hiring practices historically, say in Silicon Valley, have been predominantly male and predominantly Anglo. And um, what, what this suggests is that even though we personally do not wish to be, to treat people differently, most of the people we see most often how we have a lot in common with. We go to the same stores. We, we, um, we associate with, we, we gather um, mostly in like groups. 
So if we're going to follow the radical ethic of love that Jesus had, it will mean intentionally crossing boundaries in order to connect. A few, few years ago, I, I was invited to do an eight-week series at a church here um, on the peninsula. We call it Rhythms of the Life of the Master. And um, uh, it was a pretty wealthy community, uh, peninsula community, um, predominantly of one ethnic group, people who look like me. And we looked at some of these threads in the teaching of Jesus, and each week we do a homework assignment um, to try and cross a boundary to connect. So um, uh, one was looking at our travel patterns. If you normally drive the places you go, could you walk or take the bus? And so we, it was beautiful. We came back, came back the next week, and there was a couple of, I call them ladies who lunch, who had decided to, um, to take the bus or walk the places that they needed to go instead of driving in their cars. And they encountered all kinds of people that they had no idea lived in their community who were of different races and classes. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a new step for them. Other people, it was as simple as walking around the main street of the town that they lived in with an open mind to notice who lives there. I did a, um, another week. We said... Um, how you, where, you could change your patterns about where you shop. And so uh, a lot of people in this group shopped at stores like Whole Foods and Draeger's. And I said, if that's where you normally shop, you're going to see people who mostly are like you. This week, how about try shopping at the places where people different than you shop? Could be food for less, grocery outlet, um, what, what else? Now, if you normally shop at grocery outlet and food for less, if you could afford to, maybe shop at Draeger's or Whole Foods this week, and you're going to connect with people who you wouldn't normally uh, connect with. People came back with all kinds of incredible stories about new experiences they had with people. If you normally go to certain kinds of restaurants, try particularly a, a family-run restaurant of a, of a family who is from a, a, a certain people group. You're likely to have a really genuine um, conversation. You might even meet their kids or their grandkids in the process. What I'm suggesting, and maybe I've already said it, but I'll say it again for emphasis, is that because of the segmentation of our culture, for us to love radically, we have to make purposeful choices to cross boundaries. I know a lot of us mourn the fact that, uh, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, Sunday mornings are the most uh, segregated uh, hour of, of the week. And um, for a long time, I thought, well, I just need people who are different than me to start coming to the things that I'm in charge of. And that's how we're going to get over this. But in the last couple of years, I, after trying that for 25 or 30 years and seeing that it never worked, um, I decided that I needed to add a new rhythm to my life. And so over the last year, my wife and I have decided to join a black-led faith community. Now, we already have a faith community, like things that keep my time, but they tend to be oriented around me and people who look like me. And so it's been a step for me to submit to black leadership and to be part of another community where I'm in the minority. And it's really been powerful. So my question to you is, what boundaries can you cross to connect? Where, what are the things that you're feeling, small baby steps, steps that you might be feeling invited to take to make those intentional or purposeful steps to cross boundaries? I'll give you one more story about this. I did some consulting with a, a Chinese church here on the peninsula years ago. 
And the neighborhood had changed quite dramatically because the redlining had been dropped. A lot of people had moved out of that community into more affluent areas, but they were still meeting in a neighborhood um, where, where they owned their church building. And a diff different group of people, mostly working class Latin Americans, had chosen to um, live in that neighborhood now. And so there was a mismatch between their neighborhood and who, how they identified. And they did this amazing thing. Um, oh, for Wednesday nights, for about six or eight weeks, they just prayer walked around their church building, meeting and only for the purpose of meeting neighbors, asking if they could pray for them. And, and, they, and it was fun to hear them telling me about this because they're like, yeah, we ro roll up to a house where a guy's working on a low rider and there's mariachi music playing. And this is like really different for us. But we found out, you know, we're, we both have Jesus in common. We asked about needs in the neighborhood. And that, that church ended up starting a after-school reading program because it was a, uh, a felt need among the neighbors around the church community. I thought that was a brilliant way to cross and connect. So it's helpful to think of yourself as an outsider. Be curious and see what you can learn. And my challenge to you is to do an experiment this week to reach past differences. Try and have an encounter with someone you wouldn't, would, would normally put on the other side of us and them and ask, what can they teach me? And see how this transforms your interactions. So I know some of us, we can imagine a coworker or we can think about that, that, a business we could frequent that we don't normally or a part of our, a way of travel that's different. I've given you some ideas on that. Some of us might be a little more cautious because of, of the pandemic. A, a quick start would be to just watch a movie, documentary, or television show where the primary characters are of a different race or ethnicity or faith background than you. And you can learn some things vicariously that will help prepare you for when you have a chance to, um, to love someone in person like that. Second thing I want to note is that Jesus engaged with humility, affirming inherent dignity and worth. So <clears throat> what's striking about this story of John 4 is that Jesus did not begin his interaction with the woman at the well from a place of power or hierarchy. He was the one who had a need and he asked her, will you give me some water? I'm thirsty. And that became the basis of the relationship. It was an equalized relationship. And I'm going to be honest with you and say, often when I want to connect across differences, I want to be in a place of power. I remember a friend of mine used to run a, um, a community center in the, uh, the Lower Haight District of San Francisco. It was run by a Baptist group, and they give out groceries and provide meals. And so I show up to volunteer, and I expected all right, I'm going to be put in charge of something. I've been to seminary. This is kind of what I do. And instead, my friend Eric said, um, Mark, Sandra is going to be your, um, your lead for the day and give you instructions about the work that we need you to do. And S Sandy was a middle-aged, um, homeless, um, uh, black, trans female. And um, I'm like, why, why do I have to submit to somebody like this? But, um, but, I, but I, I hesitantly went along with it. 
And at the end of us bagging up groceries uh, that day, Sandy said, hey, here's some groceries for you and your family. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm, you know, I, I don't have this need. And Sandy said to me, uh, listen, friend, we all, have, we all have things we need and we all have something to give. So around here, that's how community works. So take some groceries home to your babies. And I, that helped me realize that my sense of being greater than had actually kept me out of community. And I've seen this confirmed over and over again, that those of us perhaps with more privilege who, who pull back, we're actually missing out on the kind of vibrant community that others who are able to understand this giving and receiving uh, experience, I think, in a, in, a, in a better way. And so what this requires is to affirm something core to our identity uh, in the kingdom of God. Put your hand on your heart for a second. And uh, in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. To know who we are appropriately. And so I want to remind you of something. You are made in God's image with inherent dignity and worth. So I want you to repeat, put your, hold your hand on your heart, repeat after me. I am made in God's image. I have inherent dignity and worth. All right, here's where, here's where we're going to take the risk. Stand up and turn towards another person. Bow, bow your head towards them and say, you are made in God's image. You have inherent dignity and worth. All right, terrific. You may be seated. If I can affirm that I'm made in God's image, I'm also invited to recognize that you are made in God's image and that we have equal dignity and worth. It's not greater than or less than. Does this make sense to you? All right. So um, a third thing I want to I point out from this story about Jesus and the, uh, and the woman at the well is that Jesus looked with mercy and compassion. He could see her situation. It seems like he had some intuition or knowledge of things that she didn't tell him that were places where she felt shame. And Jesus was able to hold that and not see or define her by the mistakes or limitations that she had in her life that he was able to look at her with mercy and compassion. I want you to stand with me again, those in the live audience. Stand up again. You know, sitting's the new smoking, so I'm really just trying to help you out here. All right? I want you to make a shape of a heart with your hands. And I want you to turn again towards another person in the room. And, um, and I want you to look them in the eyes through the shape of that heart. Really, I'm at, I want you to do this. It's COVID safe. All right? Look at, look at them through the shape of the heart with your hands. I want you to remember, you are looking at someone made in God's image. Someone that the creator says is beloved. See them for who they really are. Just hold your gaze on your eyes for, for their eyes for a second. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never encountered a mere mortal. 
the people you live with and work with and fight with, if you knew who they had the potential of becoming, you would be tempted to bow down and worship. Recognize that belovedness in the person that you're looking at right now. All right, you can put your hands down. Normally I'd say hug it out, but um, maybe give them a fist bump before we move on. We can train to resonate with God's heart for all people. The truest thing about you and I is not that we are broken. Not, it's, it's not that we're sinners. The truest thing about us is that we are beloved. So when, when our creator looks at us, our creator recognizes us and cherishes and delights in us as, 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 the, as children, delights in us. And we can learn to have that gaze, to receive that gaze, and also to resonate with that gaze for others as well. I call this having eyes of compassion. And the gospel writers went out of their way to recognize the ways that Jesus looked at people. I'll share three of them with you. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So there is, this is a spiritual discipline or practice. It's like, a, it's, it's like it could be like lifting um, weights with good form in the gym where we can learn to practice uh, God's compassion towards others with how we, how we look at them and what we think and feel as we're looking. So I'm from the Midwest originally. Uh, moving to San Francisco was a bit of a shock to me. There was all kinds of um, new people to exercise compassion towards. Some people I felt afraid of. Some people I felt like I was supposed to judge because of their lifestyle or how they identified. And so I realized if I'm going to have a vital role in my neighborhood, then I'm going to have to get beyond my tendency to label and judge. And so one of the things that I started doing is I would pray this as I walk around my neighborhood. God, help me to think your thoughts and feel your feelings for the people and places that I see. And that was an acknowledgement that there are ways that I tend to think and feel that are different than the ways God tends to think and feel, and that I, I want a heart adjustment. I started doing my, my quiet time each day in the Castro, San Francisco's historic gay district, because that was a population of people that, that I had I'd really not had many encounters with before. Um, my, my faith background gave me certain prejudices towards, and I needed that heart training to see my neighbors uh, through eyes of compassion rather than judgment. And um, it transformed my interactions. Pretty soon I was able to make friends with some, some people and have incredible God conversations because of the retraining of my eyes and my heart. There's an exercise I like to do, and actually Pastor Shannon has done it with me, where we, we go on an, a resonate walk. You could do this around San Mateo if you wanted to, even just around this area here, where we looked at some prayers from the scripture and then went on quite a long walk, four or five hours, where we were trying to train our eyes and our hearts to see as God sees. And afterwards, we kind of reflected on that. So, so there you see Pastor Shannon doing it there. Another one of the prayers that, um, that, I, that I invite people to pray as we walk is, Lord, show me where your glory is displayed in this place and among these people. And the reason why I think this is important is Romans 1 says, all of creation speaks to the glory of God. 
And so, not, um, and so we could, you could walk around your community or your workplace or your neighborhood and go, where do I see signs of God's goodness and beauty in this place? And to recognize those things, to use them as fuel for bringing praise and glory to the creator. Now, when I first started taking people on walks in my neighborhood, I primed them for certain things. I'd say, you're going to see gang insignia. You're going to see drug dealers. You're going to see people unhoused on the street. You're going to see piles of feces on the sidewalk. And so I'd send people out to pray, and we'd come back together to do a reflection. Guess what they thought about the neighborhood? It's dirty. There's a lot of bad people here. I had, I had put this in their heads, and they saw what I expected them to see. So I learned to change how I set up the time. And I said, we're going to walk through this neighborhood. You're going to see vibrant colors. You're going to hear incredible music. You're going to smell wonderful aromas of like uh, carnitas sizzling on a grill. You're going you're to see people with all kinds of amazing different skin tones and ways of dressing and culture. And I want you to recognize that God made each of those people and, and to celebrate how God's glory is revealed through all these things. Well, when I set up the, the walk like that, people came back with very different stories because they learned to see in a different kind of way. Does that make sense? And so my invitation to you is to practice this. A good way to do it is if you have to drive somewhere. It's hard to practice compassion, uh, eyes of compassion, when you're having to, to deal with Bay Area traffic or when you're a pedestrian dealing with Bay, Bay Area traffic especially. One other way of practicing this is about how we talk. How we talk reveals the kind of assessments that we make of others. And so a practice that's really helped me is to refrain from a talk that has contempt, judgment, or labeling in it. Particularly right now, uh, I think our, our media uh, highlights the polarizations in our culture and the language that's used villainizes certain people of that political party or that persuasion or that people group. And the language is very charged. What if you and I tried to go a week without using that labeling language? How might it, 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 um, it transform our conversations? And so I'm going to invite you to make a promise with me for the next seven days. Here's the promise. I promise to practice positive speech. I will only speak words of affirmation about myself and others, and I'll refrain from making critical and disparaging comments and avoid labeling language. Would anyone dare to try that with me for seven days to see what, what might happen? All right. Uh, next week, maybe you can ask people how, how it went. Thank you for, um, for giving me such a, a generous amount of time to share. I probably, I probably talked a bit longer than normal because this hasn't been bottled up for 15 months. So I, I, you need to practice some eyes of compassion towards me. But let's pray together. Will you bow with me? Jesus, you modeled loving all people unconditionally. And you have promised that we have the potential to learn to love all people unconditionally. First, help us to embrace and internalize the truth that we are your beloved children. 
that, that grace is the basis of our relationship with you, that we're all part of your family. And then as we internalize that, may we resonate with your heart and reach out to connect with those, with those around us in our, in, in our families and households, in our workplaces, in our community, and in our world. Amen.